Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with author Tracy Cox. Tracy has been writing about sex for 30 years and has published 16 books, with her latest being Great Sex Starts at 50. She has been everywhere in the media, including on Oprah. She writes a regular column for Mail Online and hosts a weekly radio show. Tracy also has her own line of sex toys with retailer Love Honey. We're going to be talking about her new book today, which explores how to have a great sex life as you age. This episode is for everyone, regardless of where you are in the lifespan. For those who are younger, we're going to discuss how to cultivate good habits in the bedroom to keep your sex life hot for decades to come. And for those who are a little older, we'll be talking about common issues that arise and how to deal with them so that you can get your intimate life back on track. This is going to be a really fun conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Tracy, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you here. Thanks for joining me. So to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about how you became a sex writer in the first place? You've been doing this for quite a while now, but can you tell us a little bit about the story of how you got into writing and speaking about sex for a living? I think it all started, I blame it all on my big sister, actually, because she used to work for family planning. She's four years older than me. So when I was at school, I was a bit like Otis out of sex education, where everybody knew I had a big sister that knew a lot about sex. So I'd get kids coming to me and saying, you know, what does this mean? I'm going to get pregnant or, do, you know, do I need, what does this mean? Have I got an SQI or whatever? And I'd go cheerfully running off to my sister and ask, ask her for the answers. And I think that set me up for being not embarrassed about sex. And then when I was 15, my dad left my mum and admitted he'd been having an affair for 10 years, which was clearly a, a bombshell to the family. And I remember just being so fascinated by the power of sex and what an immense force it is. So I think that when I went to university, I always wanted to be a writer. So I knew I was going to do journalism, but then I really tossed up between that and psychology. Should I become a sex therapist? So I did some sex therapy and I did a journalism degree as well, and then decided to go down the path of being a writer first and foremost, but making it my specialty topic, which is kind of what I've done, which I think is the right choice. I don't know whether I'd be very good as a practicing therapist, because I have no disassociation skills. I'd still be looking after the client I had when I first ever started my practice. So probably the right move for me. <laughs> I can relate to that. There was a point where I was debating whether I wanted to go into therapy or to be a researcher and writer. And I wasn't sure that I could handle that and not letting that interfere or spill over because, you know, it's hard to separate that out. And, you know, the work of a sex therapist, I think is, is really hard and challenging because you're dealing with people's biggest, most intimate problems and secrets and being able to create boundaries and have that work-life balance is a tough act to do. Yeah, it's commendable. It certainly is. And sex therapists do great and important work. And unfortunately, there aren't nearly enough of them. We need more sex therapists out there. So in your new book, Great Sex Starts at 50, you offer a lot of wonderful sex tips that can be helpful to people of any age, but you also explore how sex changes as we get older. And this is a topic that is not often discussed. I mean, people don't like to think about, let alone talk about, their parents or grandparents having sex. You know, it's a taboo topic of discussion. 
And when people do talk about sex and aging, it's often discussed in this very negative lens, right? Where the focus is on chronic health issues and how that impairs sexual functioning. And so when people think about what their sex life is going to be in the future, they don't necessarily see themselves as having much to look forward to. But that's not really the case, right? So in your work, you've actually found that older couples are often more sexually satisfied. So can you tell us a little bit about why that is and how sex can get better as we age? Well, there's a reason why I called the book Great Sex Starts at 50, which a lot of people have said, come on, does it really? And it's like, yes, <laughs> it's like young sex is great sex, but older sex, the sex you have when you're older isn't worse, it's just different. And I think that was the, the whole main thing with the book is that, okay, what we need to do is stop thinking about older sex as, you know, rethink the way we see sex. Like sex isn't necessarily young, frenetic thrusting. And, you know, sex can also be slow and gentle and more touch-based. So, you know, an intercourse isn't sex. It, it, it absolutely, you know, infuriates me when people just equate sex equals intercourse. It's not. Foreplay isn't something you do before sex. Foreplay is sex. So I think in order to accept that older sex can be just as good as young sex, you have to realize that, you know, sex isn't, might not look the way you think sex should look, but it doesn't mean that it's not going to be satisfying. And I think the minute you take away intercourse as the main part of sex, which often does get taken away in a father, um, the father latter part of your life, because sex might become painful or he might have erection issues. Once his penis isn't the star anymore, it definitely gets better, particularly for women, because, of course, women don't get their orgasms from penetration anyway. So if you take away intercourse as being the main bit, which is often the main bit when you're younger, and replace it with, you know, orgasms and touch and erotica, the sex is bound to get better as you get older. Yeah, and that lines up very well with the research and also what I hear from a lot of sex therapists which is that by taking a more expansive view of what sex is, you have the opportunity to seek out more pleasure, to experience different sensations, to be intimate when maybe one of you isn't in the mood for intercourse. You know, there are other things that you can do. So it creates more opportunities and avenues for pleasure. And there is some research showing that sexual satisfaction can increase in older age, but it's actually particularly true for women, a little bit less so for men. But that supports this idea that your sex life doesn't have to get worse. It doesn't have to deteriorate with age. You can keep having great sex throughout the lifespan. Now, while sex can get better with age, one of the things you talk about in your book is that a lot of older couples stop having sex and then they never talk about it again, right? They talk about everything else in their lives. <laughs> They're eating habits, bowel habits, everything, right? But they don't talk about sex for some reason. And if you never talk about sex, it's unlikely that you're going to start having it again. So for people who find it difficult to talk about sex, can you give us some practical tips on how to start or maybe restart the conversation and keep it going over time? That was what shocked me the most when I was researching this book was the amount of, like I, I interviewed hundreds of women by, you know, some strangers by online or, you know, through my socials and stuff like that. And then I interviewed low, you know, dozens and dozens of women in the flesh. So I, my poor old couple of friends, you know, yet again, got dragged along for me to talk to them. And what I found extraordinary was the amount of them who were so close, like you said, talk about everything, but had quietly taken sex off the table and just never had a conversation about it. 
And when that happens, when you stop having sex, unless you have a conversation about it, it will never just magically fix itself. You're never going to turn around and say to each other, God, honey, you know, we haven't had sex for five years. Let's go and have it now. That conversation is not ever going to happen. So you must talk about it. And even if you decide that you are happy not having sex again, you still have to have the conversation because if you don't, affection dies. Because if you don't, you know, talk about the fact that you are not going to have sex again, when one of you, you know, is affectionate to the other, you know, one of you thinks it's going to be interpreted as, oh my God, that might, he'll think I want sex or she'll think I want sex. And the other person says, oh my God, if I respond to that, you know, they'll think I want sex. When it, So once affection dies, it's all over, I think. I think you can survive without sex, but I don't think you can survive without affection. So you must have the conversation. And it's so easy to have the conversation. You simply have to say, honey, look, I've been thinking about things and we haven't had sex for ages. We haven't had sex for such a long time. I really miss it. Can we talk about, you know, how to get things back on track? What do you think about all that? And just keep it calm. Keep it as a natural conversation. Don't ever utter those awful words of we need to talk and it's about sex because they will run from the room. (laughs) It's just just like, God, it's just a We've had sex for ages. Just keep it light. Now, if you haven't had sex for ages, it's highly on the cards that they might get angry. They might say something really awful like, well, if you didn't put on weight or if you didn't, you know, because people lash out. Because remember, you've been rehearsing the conversation. They haven't. So often people's first reaction is to run from the room or get really angry or defensive. But if you leave people to, to sit on it and just, you know, sit with it and have a little bit of time to think about it, then you can start having the conversation. So the most excruciating, embarrassing bit is just that one sentence. That's once you've got that one sentence done, it's out there. And then you can have a conversation about it. Yeah. So it's getting up the courage to bring up that one sentence and the confidence to introduce it. But I'd like all of your advice, you know, keep it light, non-judgmental, recognize the fact that your partner may not have been thinking about this or may have been thinking about it in a different way. And it's also really important that once you start this conversation that you keep it going, right? Yeah. And that you do regular sexual check-ins with your partner because that's how, you know, sex disappears is when you stop talking about it, it often goes away. And it's also important to recognize that, you know, part of the reason here might be that people's desires are changing, their bodies are changing, and you might not be aware of what the issues are that have contributed to them not wanting sex or not being as sexually active as they were before. So think of it as an information gathering mission, and then you can use that information to build on and improve your sex life. I think often with men, whenever I, I, you know, whenever somebody writes to me and says, oh my God, my, my partner has just decided all of a sudden just seems to have gone off sex. I don't know why we're getting along fine. I don't think they're having an affair. And he's aged 45 or over. Invariably, it's erection issues because men get really embarrassed about it. And they would rather never have sex again than have to admit to their partner right. that they're, they're not getting an erection. And it's so strange. And it's, it made me so furious when I was writing the book, Justin, because I talked to all these men and said, but everyone, so everything else about you is allowed to age except for your penis. Why aren't you allowed for your penis to age? Why is this such a big psychological catastrophe to not get an erection? And you don't need an erect penis to have a good time in bed. You really don't. You know, you have tongues, you have fingers, you have sex toys, you have so many other different things. So why is it such a big deal? I mean, I get it, but I don't get it. Women, you know, I don't know. I don't know whether, I don't know. We just don't have the equivalent, do we? Right. 
And it's so true that men place so much value on their penises and their sexual performance. And so even just a one-time thing where you can't get an erection when you want to have one can be psychologically devastating to a lot of men. And this even happens to a lot of younger men, you know, guys in their late teens or early 20s might think that they have erectile dysfunction because they had a one-time issue. And what I think a lot of men don't realize is that erections, <laughs> you know, we don't always get them when we want to have them. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you because sexual arousal is impacted by a lot of different factors and stress is a big one. So if your mind is elsewhere with work or you're distracted, you know, that can affect your sexual performance or or maybe you're with a new partner who is really hot and attractive and you really want to have sex but you're worried and you've got some performance anxiety or maybe you had one too many cocktails or beers, right? There's all kinds of things that can impact erectile functioning and it's okay if your penis doesn't always do what you want it to do. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. And so I think we need to change the way that men think about penile functioning and reset their expectations because, and, and this is something you get into in the book, it's so important to have realistic expectations for your body and for sex in order to have good sex. I absolutely agree with that. And, and I think managing expectations, again, going back to that, we need to move away from what we think sex looks like is all to do with that. And I mean, it's sort of another thing. Oh, God, is this the angry podcast? Because I keep saying what makes me furious. <laughs> really annoying. People go on and on and on about the sex they had at the start. And it's like, oh, God, it's all to do with hormones. And it's novelty. And you cannot get that sex you had at the start for the rest of your life because it's just not physiologically going to happen. Those hormones dry up. Novelty, you know, you're sleeping with the same person day in, day out. It's not, and there's no novelty there, I mean, other than what you can create yourself. So, of course, you're not going to be ripping each other's clothes off just because you look at each other when you've been with each other for 30 years. But I think the reason why we're still, still so hung up on that is that that's how movies and TV shows and the media depict sex, don't they? I mean, it's getting better. It's getting better. We're, we're having a lot more, you know, sex, you know, shows that are coming out that are, are showing sex that even remotely resembles real sex. So it is getting better. But there's still that, you know, it annoys me. If I'm watching a show and you see a couple who've been together 30 years or something, and they just wake up on a Sunday morning, no reason, suddenly have, you know, suddenly shoving her up against the wall and having this way. It's just like, oh, for God's sake, please. You know, it doesn't happen like that. And then, <laughs> I'm sitting there knowing everything I know and then I feel embarrassed with my partner because I think God I bet he's looking at that and thinking well, we don't do that she knows all this stuff about sex but we're not doing that and it's so dangerous these myths that are out there I wish they'd go away and I wonder whether they'll ever go away right and what you're speaking to is the importance of modeling and how that plays a role in shaping our views towards sex and our approach towards sex and given that we don't have a lot of great sex ed and our parents don't like to talk about it with us. And so, you know, we often look to the media and to pornography to learn how sex works. And we don't see a lot of diverse models of behavior. And something else that comes in with all of this that, that you talk about in your book is this idea of orgasm as kind of being the ultimate goal of sex, right? And whenever you're watching porn, like orgasm is the climax and often like the video will end right after the orgasm happens and especially the the male orgasm. And so you talk about 
why it's important for us to stop making orgasm the ultimate goal of sex and to make it less goal oriented. So can you tell us a little bit more about the benefits of recentering our view of sex so that it's not around orgasm as the ultimate goal? I think first up, as you get older, particularly if you're a female, it can take longer to orgasm. Well, it's not just female, actually. It's men and women take a lot longer to orgasm. And I love the fact that this is always presented as a problem. You know, it takes me longer to orgasm. When when you think about it, orgasm is a tiny, tiny period of time. You know, if you're lucky, it lasts a couple of minutes. So why would you want to rush to get to that point? It's going to be, sex will be over in about two minutes if you, if you do that. So I don't see that taking longer to orgasm is a bad thing. I think it's a really good thing because then you can, you know, the build up slower, you, you know, the whole point of sex is the anticipation, the sort of the journey, it really is the journey. And it's this not, you know, like, did you come or did you come or no, we better keep going until you come. It shouldn't be all about like that. And I think that's what happens again when you get a bit older, is you become less performance focused and less competitive and less sort of one-upmanship, I think, and and less tick, tick, you know, did we did we achieve our goal? And and a little bit more into right, okay, we probably have less time limits, you know, as you get older, you have more time. And um and it sort of becomes a, a, a less performance-based sex, which I think is good. And as you say, though, any age you should be aiming for that. It isn't all about ticking boxes. I mean, some of the best sex I've ever had in my life didn't involve an orgasm. Sometimes I think you can be too aroused and you're sort of so in the moment and so that you can't focus enough to have an orgasm. But by God, it makes for great fantasy fodder for later on. And I think that also as women then get older, you know, he needs firmer stimulation. She needs, you know, more stimulation because it, it sometimes is less sensitive or more sensitive. So you just have to work with your bodies. But I mean, this whole racing towards an orgasm as the goal of sex, I think if you're, that's all you're doing, you are completely missing the point because sex is about connection. It's about intimacy. It's about relaxing into the sensations and enjoying them for what they are without thinking, God, I haven't come yet. Oh my God, he's going to get, you know, really disappointed or she's going to be really disappointed or, you know, it's, it's just a case of just relax into it and try not to be so performance-based. It's difficult to do, but it can be done. And the minute you do that, sex becomes completely different. Yeah. And this is something that sex therapists refer to as the orgasmic imperative. You know, this idea, this sense of pressure that you have to have an orgasm, otherwise it doesn't really count as sex and you're a failure if it doesn't happen. And there are so many people who, when they don't orgasm, their immediate response is to apologize to their partner like they did something wrong like it's it's shameful almost to not have an orgasm and then there's also the fact that a lot of partners are putting pressure on the other person to have an orgasm right and when there is all of that pressure either coming from a partner or it's psychological pressure that you're putting on yourself that paradoxically actually makes it harder to have an orgasm right because the more you start thinking about it the less likely it is to occur and so I think it is really important for people of any age to, to really reset those expectations. And yes, orgasms are great. And I hope you have lots of them, but you don't always have to have an orgasm in order to have great sex and just take the pressure down a notch, right? Because that can open up the door to a lot more fun and exciting opportunities. Now, another common issue that comes up 
as people age, and this is especially true later in life, is that they just don't feel sexy anymore. And I think this has also been very true during the pandemic, right? The quarantine 15 is real. You know, a lot of us have put on a little bit of weight. We've gotten out of our regular self-care and beauty routines, and that can make it hard to feel sexual. So how do you deal with body image issues that might be affecting your sex life? What kinds of things should you do and what kinds of things might you want to avoid in order to address that? I think the thing about body image is that the first thing people think is is that if you have a, in what society considers a good body, that you're not going to have any body image issues. And this is utterly, completely false, which is why if you do have body image issues, going on a diet and exercising will make you feel better, but they might not solve the problem at all. There are plenty of Victoria's Secrets models running around who still think that they have an awful body and who worry about how they look. So it's not about how you actually look. It's all about perception and how you perceive yourself. And they've done so many studies on what does fix body image. And the things that really do work are things like when you're having sex with your partner, instead of thinking, close your eyes for a start and focus on what you're feeling, not on what you're, you know, don't look down, don't look at and look down and do spectatorial where you're, you know, above yourself looking down and seeing what you think they're seeing. Just focus on the feelings and the sensations. And, and that takes you away from, you know, like all this judgment stuff. The other thing that they do know affects body image in a positive way is to have more sex. The more sex you have, the more you, you know, subconsciously your, your brain goes, okay, well, you know, this person's constantly wanting to have sex with me, then I can't be that bad because they're wanting to have sex with me all the time. So it, it's a win-win situation. And the other thing that really helps, especially with body confidence in, in the bedroom, is to be very confident in your sex skills. Now, if you think that you're a great lover, you're going to go into that bedroom completely differently. You're not going to be going, oh, yes, but I'm, you know, I'm a bit fat today or you know, I haven't washed my hair or all these silly things that we worry about. If you think you're a really shit-hot lover, you're going to go in there and be confident and have great sex. And so it's much more important. If you want to improve your body image, have more sex and improve your sex skills, these will do far more than the best diets in the world because it is not about what you look like. It is how you perceive yourself as a sexual person. Yeah, perception is everything when it comes to our sex lives. And, you know, we also see that this is true in the case of, say, sexual desire discrepancies where partners want different levels, different amounts of sex, and they're unhappy with their sex life. And part of it is because they're perceiving their partner is not wanting as much sex as they do, right? They're, they're just inferring a lot without ever having the conversation about it. And the same is true with our bodies. You know, we think all of these things about ourselves that aren't true and that don't line up with other people's perceptions of us. And so it's just really important to to keep that in mind is that your perception might not reflect the objective reality of your relationship and how other people perceive you and find you to be attractive and so forth. So I think that's a really key and important point. Now, another common issue that comes up in a lot of long-term relationships is that people will say, I love my partner, but I don't really want to have sex with them anymore, right? So oftentimes people lose desire for their partner over time. So what can we do to get that back? You know, short of, you know, breaking up and finding a new partner, what can you do to, you know, really kind of get the spark back in your relationship? That is the most 
a million dollar question, isn't it, really? And this, this whole chapter, I, I love my partner desperately, but I don't want to have sex with them. And it was building up and I was just, I could see the reader reading it or like, you know, feel big, go on, get on with it, tell me the solution. <laughs> it was like, oh, I don't have one solution. There's many things that you have to do. And I think the first thing that you have to realise is that it's normal. I mean, we, you know, the things that fuel sex and the few things that fuel love are totally different things, and they actually work against each other. Like for love, you want contentment, security. You know, to you want to be able to trust your partner. You want to be able to relax. You know, desire and lust want completely different things. They like the forbidden, the erotic, the unknown. You know, anxiety. So unless you're in a roller coaster relationship that you know is up and down and all over the place, you're probably not going to have this passionate, fiery sex. You know that. You know, you're probably going to have quite relaxed tend to sex and all these things that that make you feel nice in a relationship actually do kill desire i mean we think of sex and love as bedfellows but they're not really so i think the main thing for most couples is to recognize this doesn't mean that you pick the wrong person it doesn't mean that you're just friends it means that this is just evolutionary this is what happens you know we're not built to stay with the same person forever and you just have to accept all right I've chosen love over sex and this is what I have to work with then once you relax about it and realize that it's totally normal then you can move on and do things like okay you know you've got to get yourself out of it yourselves and I I know everybody hates the word role play including me because I think of things like you know dressing up as a nurse or something but when I say role play, I mean, you've got to get yourselves out of your character. So you've got to become not, you know, Miles who takes out the rubbish, but Miles, the hot guy who's still out there that other women fancy. And one of the things that which really worked for me is I remember I always think it's good for you to meet outside. Don't just meet at home and then go out together. Meet outside, like be in the restaurant watching your partner walk through the ring, watch the heads turn. Think to yourself, bloody hell, like other people find him attractive. It's not just me. And that sort of you know, puts you back at the beginning, in the beginning, that that little bit of anxiety and jealousy is a good thing for you. And, you know, when people say, oh, you know, Harold, he'd never cheat on me, I just think, oh, my God, that's so derogatory to Harold. You know, what what if, you know, Nicole Kidman or somebody amazing walked in the ring, you don't think he's going to run off with her? You know, it's so awkward when people say that we should think that our partners are going to run around. And, you know, we should think that we need to really keep to have them and, and be sexy and look attractive and, you know, gosh, you know, I want to look, be the best possible person for them and create a little bit of anxiety for yourself. So it's it's all about seeing your partner through other people's eyes and then using creative things like maybe add other stimulation, maybe a bit of erotica is a good thing, maybe, you know, just pretend a few things. They don't have to be these cringeworthy scenarios, but some kind of role play. So it is all about, yeah, trying to see your partner, not as your, you know, the person that you sit on the sofa with every night, but as a sexual being and as separate from you. Don't be Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Do things separately. You know, live life separately so that you can come back and share as individuals. Yeah, and I think that's such an important point you know, in terms of the way that we look at relationships, we think your partner should be your best friend and you should do everything together (laughs) all day and all night. But having some space and having a little bit of a sense of mystery about your partner, right? These are things that are really crucial to having that spark in the relationship. And I know that Esther Perel talks a lot about this in her work, right? Where desire needs space, you need that mystery. And so, it is okay to do some different things, right? You don't have to do everything together. And that can actually be one of the keys to, to kind of getting that passion back in your relationship. 
it's quite difficult to because no one wants that anxiety and the jealous feelings because they're not they're not that nice but they are really essential to keep desire alive. So it's something that rebels. And I know Esther gets lots of opposition to her work and, because people don't like the idea of it, do they? But it really does. It is necessary. Right. And and I think her ideas do challenge the popular view of relationships and what a relationship should be. And there is some resistance to that. But I think she makes some really key, really crucial points that are backed up by the research and the data and, you know, if you really want to get the spark back in your relationship, you might want to listen to what she has to say. Now, we have many more sex tips and common sex questions to answer. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Sex and Psychology podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Promescent. Promescent is here to help you get better in bed. Check out their Vitaflux supplements, which aim to enhance sexual health by increasing libido, sexual desire, and orgasm satisfaction in men and women alike. Vitaflux can also help to increase erection strength in men and vaginal lubrication in women. Promescent's other sexual wellness products include their signature delay spray, which can help men last longer in bed, a female arousal gel that heightens sensitivity, and a line of personal lubricants that come in several varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is Tracy Cox, author of the new book, Great Sex Starts at 50. Something you talk about in your book, Tracy, that I think will be surprising to many people is that monogamy is often harder on women than it is on men right? People tend to think that it's just the opposite. But what the research shows is that women's libido tends to drop much more than men's does in a long-term heterosexual monogamous relationship. So why is that? And what's the solution? I think it is quite interesting that you know, everybody knows that women go off sex. There's so many jokes based around the fact that, you know, the minute she's married, she won't be putting out anymore and all this sort of stuff, particularly in straight relationships. But the thing is about women, which I find extraordinary, is that if you give women interesting, adventurous, erotic sex, they're going to want sex. If you give her boring, um, penis-based, intercourse-based sex that you've been having in the same way for the last five years, she's probably going to pass on it. So I think this perception that women's libido is lower than men's is completely false. I think that, you know, women women are the ones that need the adventurous sex. I think so I honestly do think for most men, if you said, right, you know, you're going to have sex in the same way every single time you have sex, but you're going to have it three times a week and that's going to be your lot. I think most people go, a lot of guys go, yeah, all right. But if you said that to a woman, women need more to get themselves aroused. Women need variety and they need adventure. They need to be pushed out of their comfort zone. And and it was quite extraordinary when Fifty Shades of Grey came along because whatever you think of that book, it was quite interesting because at the time I think sex had kind of gone out of fashion and people were saying to me, like, oh, God, why are you writing sex books for? No one cares about sex anymore, do they? You know. And then that book came along and it spoke to middle-aged women. And you had these women who had had sex with their partner for like 20 years, like suddenly eyeing them off at three o'clock in the morning as they're still reading the book and the sex scenes and wanting to have sex with them. And it's because it was politically incorrect sex. It was sex that they were like, yeah, 
bring on this sex, not this PC, you know, very sorry, honey. I think we're too nice to each other in the bedroom. We need to get back to our caveman bit a bit, bit more. And I think if you give women sort of this sort of sex, then they will be more interested in sex just as much as men. I think women are the ones that want adventure. We're just not bred to to sort of bring it up or and we worry that we're going to offend our partners if we're in a straight relationship because it's the man's job to, you know, this the eventual, you know, want adventurous sex, not the woman's job. So all these perceptions are still out there and I think it's definitely affecting what's happening in the bedroom. Yeah, and what you're saying lines up with my research on sexual fantasies. Before I did the work that went into my book, Tell Me What You Want, which is a book that was based around a survey of more than 4,000 American sexual fantasies, you know, prior to that, almost all of the research that was out there was based on college students, just looking at young adults. And the dominant narrative that came out of all of that was that men and women are totally different in terms of their sexual fantasies and men want adventure and variety and women want passion and romance and intimacy. And when I started looking at a more diverse group of people, diverse in terms of age and sexual orientation and gender identity and so forth, one of the things I saw was that a lot of these assumptions that we'd made about women's sexuality and sexual fantasies are wrong and that women's fantasies are a lot more adventuresome than people tend to give them credit for. And actually, that seems to change as they age, right? And so specifically, women in their 40s, you know, tend to have more adventuresome sexual fantasies in a lot of ways than than younger women, right? And so this changes as we age. And during the 40s, you know, that's a period when most women are involved in long-term monogamous relationships, right? And it's where you start experiencing a lot of these challenges in terms of keeping desire alive. And so I think we need to rethink a lot of these assumptions that we have about men and women and sex and and what we want. Now, you also have a few chapters in your book that talk about how to deal with specific sexual problems and issues that arise related to aging. So, for example, in one of your chapters, you talk about menopause, which we know can lead to issues like vaginal dryness or it can make intercourse painful and uncomfortable, among other things. So let's talk about practical solutions to some of these common problems that arise with sex and aging. So for women who might be facing issues in their intimate lives due to menopause, what do you recommend that they do or try in order to address them? I think the first thing is that that I think women are very accepting of menopause, almost too accepting to the point where they think, oh, well, this is just my lot now. You know, this is what I have to put up with. All women have this sort of thing. And so that's what I've got to do. Well, they don't. And I mean, well, they do. They, everyone shares the same symptoms. But there are so many solutions out there. And so if you go to your doctor and talk to them or visit a menopause clinic or talk to your friends about it, there are solutions for all of these problems, like vaginal dryness, like painful sex. And a lot of them are just practical things like change the way he thrusts. If you're having painful sex, you know, if you're, it hurts when, when you have intercourse and, well, that's traditional style of thrusting is not going to suit you. It's going to hurt and you never want sex again. So instead, switch to like more of a grinding thing where your pelvis is close and he just, you know, stays in close and grinds in circles. It works better because it puts pressure on the inner clitoris, so it's better for you anyway. Most men don't mind and they find it pleasurable as well, but that simple thing of just changing the way, you know, he thrusts 
can solve a lot of problems. And there are so many solutions out there. I mean, there's vaginal moisturizers, vaginal dryness, there are vaginal pessaries, which I think work a treat. If you can do HRT, that really helps as well, because it's all to do with it's all to do with the hormones, you know, testosterone, progesterone, estrogen, they're all just leaving the body. And this also happens for men, of course, testosterone drops, and that's what's affecting their erection strength, etc. And desire. So there are solutions to all of this, but you just have to, don't accept it. Don't just think that this is what a woman have to put up with, or men. It is not. There are always solutions, and there are very practical solutions that you can do, like those things. Or, for instance, you can, another thing that you can do is wear a, a little buffer, which is like a like a stroker, part of a stroker. So it's a thick silicone ring that fits around the base of the penis, which literally stops him thrusting too deeply. And this works really well for, for men and women because, you know, she's thinking, oh, my God, he's going to lose control. And then all of a sudden it's going to hurt. So she's tensing, waiting for him to lose control. And he's thinking, oh, my God, I can't lose control because I'll hurt her. You know, and so that really solves the problem for both of you. You can relax into it. So there's lots of this practical stuff in my in my book because there are solutions for everything. You just need to you know want to go and find them and know that they are out there for you. There is a solution for most things to do with aging. Yeah, I think it's so true. And what holds a lot of people back is really the embarrassment and shame. And so they don't talk about sexual health issues with their primary care provider. And unfortunately, a lot of doctors don't bring this up with their patients either, right? Right? Because mm-hmm. there's kind of this reluctance on both sides of the table when you're in a medical office to talk about sex, right? Because you've got the shame and embarrassment that the patient's bringing, but doctors often feel the same way. And doctors, also get pretty poor sex education and they're not trained a lot when it comes to issues of, of sex and aging. So it's really important for people to feel empowered to bring up these conversations with their doctors and for our doctors to be trained to help us to find solutions. But you are absolutely right that there are solutions out there for most of these problems and they can usually be addressed either in consultation with your physician or with a sex therapist or even just going the self-help route. Like there are lots of guides out there that can give you ideas for different things to try. So what about for older men who are experiencing erectile issues? I know you talked a little bit about the hormonal factor there, but what are some other advice or suggestions for men who start to experience more frequent erectile issues with aging? I think there are several paths you can go down. You can either, you can go down the, okay, well, all right, we don't need an erect penis to have a great time in bed and change your focus from penetration to, you know, oral sex, foreplay, using sex toys, things like that. I always think what works really well is prostate play because that can help him get an erection. It's something a bit new and it feels great. And it's something, you know, that again, moves it away from we need this erect penis in order to have great sex. But, I mean, you could try, obviously, Viagra or or any or Cialis or one of those things. But, I mean, a lot of guys don't want to do it because it leads to so many side effects. I mean, sometimes it's a bit of a trade-off in that, you know, you think, okay, if I'm going to have the Viagra now, I'm going to have a big red head for the rest of the day, which I know happens to lots of guys. So you can look at different ways. But I think the whole thing about the the whole erection thing is we have to normalize it you know men have to realize that this is all part of aging i mean well there is aging penis and then there is erectile dysfunction they are two separate things so just because your penis is getting older and not performing as it was you don't have a problem that's just aging of the penis but 
there is, you know, erectile dysfunction is to do with the blood supply. And so all those sort of things can be addressed with Viagra and Cialis. So it's kind of a conversation that you need to have with your partner. And the thing about Viagra is that if you are a straight couple and your wife is at all, your partner is around the same age as you, there's a reason why things happen in nature. And a, and a penis that doesn't get so hard is probably going to be kinder to a vagina that's a little bit more sensitive and drier than a rock hard rock star penis that's Viagra pumped with a vagina that's not, you know, hasn't, doesn't have the equivalent. Of, she can't take a drug to suddenly make her have the vagina of her youth. So it can cause a lot of problems. So that's something that you absolutely have to talk together to decide which route you're going to go down. And there is lots in the book about, you know, if, if you want to try and have sex with a penis that's not so erect, there's some practical things on how to do that. And there's lots of stuff on things you can do that don't require an erect penis at all. And, you know, penis pumps, I don't know what you feel about that, Justin, but they do seem to have a good effect on keeping the penis nice and oxygenated. And the important thing about penile health, I think, is, is use it or lose it. If you're not having regular sex with your partner, you need to masturbate regularly to keep the, you know, everything in, in good working order. Yeah. And I think you're right that different things work for different people. And for some people, it's taking supplements. For other people, it's taking a, a drug, some Viagra type substance. For others, it's some type of psychotherapy or sex therapy, because sometimes it's psychological issues that are affecting your ability to to get or maintain erections. And, you know, for example, as men get older, they might have more body image issues, or they might have their midlife crisis or, you know, there could be any number of things going on, different stressors, anxieties. And, you know, often as we get older, there's more pressures that are placed on us in our jobs. And then we have the competing demands of home life and work life. And all of that stuff can impact your ability to become and stay aroused. So I think it's important to figure out, you know, what is the cause of the erectile issues? And is this just a natural part of aging? Or is there a psychological component? Or is there an underlying chronic health issue that's going on? And that's where working with a doctor or sex therapist, they can help you to pinpoint the cause so that you can try the most effective solution for your particular issue. Now, you talked a little bit about sex toys as you know, ways that people can introduce novelty and excitement into their sex life and deal with some of these common sexual problems. And you actually have your own line of sex toys with Love Honey. And you talk in your book about how sex toys can solve a lot of the most common sexual problems people have. So what can sex toys do for you? How can they transform your sex life? And do you have any specific toys you recommend for people to check out? One thing, another thing that shocked me when I was doing this book was the amount of women. Young women have loads of sex toys, and there seems to be this sort of, I think they reckon between 40 and 50 years old, women, for some reason, seem to have missed the vibrator thing. And I don't, I, there's always women within this category between 40 and 50 years old. And I don't know how they miss this whole thing that a vibrator for women is a, is a lifeline. I mean, vibration is by far the most effective way to stimulate the clitoris. And I mean, a vibrator can, especially if, if you are having sensitivity problems or you're oversensitive or undersensitive, you know, you can turn a vibrator up and down. <laughs> you know, your vibrator is not going to be offended if you do use it differently. Or if you have more than one, you know. 
Yeah, exactly. And of course, you know, it is use it or lose it with women as well. You know, the more orgasms you have, the better your genital shape your genitals are going to be in. So if you, you know, if you don't want to have sex with your partner three times a week or something, have two masturbatory sessions. So you've got two orgasms, you know, using your vibrator, which literally takes a few minutes. So I just don't understand women who just don't own a vibrator that is completely illogical to me because especially as you get older like say you used to masturbate as a woman using your fingers and now you've got arthritis well you know they've got vibrators that are light like to use and designed specifically for this purpose for men i think you know they need a firmer touch generally as they get older and you know strapers which are just a, a male masturbatory sleeve that slips over the penis then you move it up and down i mean they are the absolute best things for getting a man aroused without viagra who might need a bit more stimulation than you than he used to because he's, he's got a bit older but i mean i think sex toys and also just even without going the fact that they are so in a, you know they, they're really an instant, inexpensive way to add variety to your sex life. I mean, you can, they're so good now. I mean, when I started designing those sex toys, there were, there weren't too many that were designed by women. Everything was phallic shaped and everything, you know, was very much aimed at, you know, men's fantasies and what we will do with sex toys. And now you have all these great couple toys like tie-up kits, you know, tease toys. You know, you, you, there's no end of stuff that you can, you can buy a different sex toy every week and never run out. And and they're, they're just such a fantastic way to get that novelty without the, you know, the sort of complication of trying out things that might have a bad effect on your relationship, like, you know, introducing another body into the bed or whatever. And I just honestly can't speak more highly of them. And and male sex toys are a big thing now. Lots of prostate toys, lots of male vibrators. So it's a huge industry and it's hugely fascinating to work in, I have to say. Yeah. And something I've seen in the research is that there's a pretty big gap in sex toy use between men and women, especially when you're talking about heterosexual men and women, mm-hmm. where a lot of guys have just never tried any type of sex toy before. Now, it's different when you look at gay and bisexual men. They have much higher rates of sex toy usage. And I think part of that is that they're just a little bit more open to exploring their sexuality. But so there, there are all these benefits that men can tap into by experimenting with sex toys that they're missing out on because there's often the stigma around men's sex toy use and a lot of misconceptions about what sex toys are for. And, you know, sex toys aren't just for masturbation. As you mentioned, there's lots of ways that couples can use these sex toys together as a way of building up arousal by providing a form of novelty and excitement. And, you know, something else I like to recommend is consider joining one of those sex toy of the month clubs, right? Where you've got this automatic shipment of toys that comes to you once a month. And it gives you the opportunity to try something new and different. And even if it's not something that you're totally into, the great thing about it is that it provides this opportunity for sexual conversation, right? It keeps that conversation going and alive. So you can think about different ways of, of going there. And I think it's also worth mentioning that there are sex toys for every budget, right? You can buy very affordable sex toys. You can also buy gold-plated sex toys if you want. And you can buy sex toys that have all the different remote controls and motorized elements. And you know, there's, there's something out there for everyone in every taste. And so there's a lot worth exploring there. Now, we're running short on time, but there's one other issue I want to get into with you that you deal with toward the end of your book, which is sexless relationships. Mm -hmm. And I know earlier in the program, we talked a little bit about 
people in relationships where they stopped having sex and then weren't talking about it. But I want to talk about a specific case of sexless relationships where one partner wants to keep having sex, but the other one doesn't, right? So there's a desire discrepancy there. So the partners have stopped having sex, they've talked about it, but they're kind of at an impasse. And when we're talking about sexless relationships like this, these are really common. You know, U.S. data, we see that about one in seven married couples in the U.S. is in a sexless relationship. And we see that in the research, when people are in relationships like this, where there is that desire discrepancy, it creates a lot of conflict and anxiety and, and problems. So what is your advice? How do you recommend people deal with a desire discrepancy like that? I think it's really difficult if you've got one person who wants to keep going, the other one doesn't. Because you, you've got to really sit down and, and talk about stuff which no one ever wants to talk about, which is options, which is do you expect your partner, if you're the partner who doesn't want to have sex anymore, do you expect your partner to satisfy themselves just with solo sex, you know, fantasies, masturbation, you know, porn, etc.? Or would you be open to low effort sex? I mean, this is an option, again, that no one seems to think about because often, especially if it's a woman saying she doesn't want sex anymore, she means intercourse. Again, sex equals intercourse. Now, if you say to her, well, do you mean intercourse or do you mean any type of sexual activity? It's like, oh, yeah, I'd be open to that, but my husband wouldn't or my partner wouldn't, particularly, you know, straight relationships. Now, that might be the case, but if you said to the partner, look, I, I don't necessarily want to have intercourse and here's why, You've got to give a reason because it hurts or because I've never really liked it or some type of reason. But I am open to receiving, giving oral sex, you know, mucking around with sex toys, watching you masturbate. That's a very different scenario than I'm never going to do anything sexual with you ever again. So I think you have to look at that. Think it through before you have this conversation with your partner. Then, of course, there are options like, you know, giving a sort of unapproved signal that you wouldn't, you'd be open to them having sex on the side, but you don't want to talk about it or letting them have permission to have sex on the side, maybe setting some ground rules, or maybe you have to look at leaving the relationship because if you're not wanting to have sex again and you're with somebody who really, really loves sex, saying to them, I expect you to be monogamous and stay with me, but not actually provide any sex or, or allow them to have sex with you is a pretty tough call and it's a deal breaker for a lot of people. So maybe it is kinder that you separate or allow them to have sex with other people. But all of these issues have to be discussed. The worst thing you can possibly do is just take sex off the table and refuse to discuss it. And I think that is so unfair. If you're, you know, there is an unspoken commitment that if you are with somebody and it is a monogamous relationship, that you will satisfy them sexually. That's part of the deal. And if you're going to take your part away, then you know they have rights to say, well, I want to renegotiate the deal, basically. Yeah. And I think as part of this, it's important for people to recognize just how sex serves so many different purposes in our lives, right? A lot of people just talk about sex as this physical thing. It's all about the pleasure and the orgasm and so forth. But sex is really important to our psychological well-being. It's important for us to want to feel wanted and desired. And so when a partner stops wanting sex with you, that often leads people to feel really rejected and bad. And, you know, it hurts psychologically. So it's really important for couples to find ways to navigate this. And I think, you know, you're spot on that the worst thing you can do is just sit there and never talk about it again. You have to have that discussion and you have to find some productive path forward. But of course, as with everything in sex, different things work for different people. 
So thank you so much for this wonderfully informative conversation, Tracy. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and get a copy of your latest book? Everything's on my website, which is tracycox.com, and it's T-R-A-C-E-Y-C-O-X.com. And all my handles for Twitter and Instagram and stuff are on there. And the books are available anywhere you get your books, hopefully from an independent bookstore. So be sure to check out Great Sex Starts at 50. Thanks again for your time, Tracy. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, to learn more about how to communicate and talk about your sexual fantasies. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.